Hi, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 21st of August, 2019 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Today, I read a description of Hong Kong's weather on Twitter. When the sun's out, you get blasted by the heat. When the sun's gone, it feels stuffy and damp. There's no wind, and oh hey, it's raining. It made me chuckle because mm, it's generally true. However, we still love this place and the strong-minded, intelligent people who live here. This week, we start off with a story from Ella about an experience that she had in her own working life. After Ella's story, we have a reading from the Hong Kong Spoken Word Festival in 2019, titled Wanderlust by Flo Janeri and read by Vesper Liu. Before we get to the stories for today, though, a huge virtual hug goes out to our loyal Hong Kong listeners. You know we think you're amazing, and we're grateful for your continued support. Thanks go out, too, to our loyal listeners around the world. Today, especially listeners in Vinitsa, Ukraine, Toronto in Canada, and Ride in Australia. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. Our September show is coming up. On the 11th of September, our storytellers will take to the stage to tell you their true first-person stories with the theme of Flipped. The show will be hosted by Jen, and tickets are already on sale through Ticketflap. There are only three more shows on the calendar for 2019, September 11th, October 23rd, and December 4th. Not December 5th, like I've been saying for a couple of weeks on the podcast now. There are pitch workshops up for September's show if you're interested in telling at the live show, and workshops every Tuesday if you'd like to come and share a story in a small group. Find all the information you need at hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than comedy. It's better than drama. It's real life. And now from our April 2019 show with the theme Transition, here is Ella. It happened in Moscow, Russia, then the Soviet Union, and communist ideology was everywhere. But if you disagree, you were persecuted. You could lose your job, you could get arrested, you could be sent to Siberia. Those writers who dared to criticize the Soviet reality were banned. One of the most well-known of them was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was expelled from the country, uh, and his books were published only abroad, but still found their way to Russia. Reading Solzhenitsyn was risky. Giving his books to somebody else was already a grave criminal offense the anti-Soviet propaganda. At that time, I worked as an English teacher in a secondary school. The Ministry of Education allocated two classes a week for foreign languages. But even during that little time, we had to present the advantages of socialism to our students. But the most important subject for the future builders of communism was Russian-Soviet literature. The kids loved their Russian literature teacher, Alex. The school administration loved him too. He was young, 24, 25, pleasant, 
gentle, with mild manners. I did not see him much there, only at teachers' meetings. I enjoyed my work. The kids were fun. One of my favorites was Masha, a sweet girl of 15 years old. And once she came up to me and said, have you ever read Solzhenitsyn? I think he's a great Russian writer, like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. I thought, okay, how come she knows about Solzhenitsyn? Definitely not from her dad, who is a high party official. And I just said, no, I did not read him. Then the school break came, and I had other things to worry about. I forgot all about Masha. I came back to school after the break, but Alex was not there. One day, I asked another teacher, where is Alex? He doesn't work at our school anymore, does he? She said, he got arrested. He wrote a letter to the American president, and he got arrested. And don't ask about him anymore. And she hurried away. Well, but life went on, and the education process too. However, in a few days, the head teacher asked me to his office, which he never did before. I knew something was up. I opened the door. He asked me to come in. He looked pale, nervous. He took a cigarette puff. He paused for a few moments and finally said, I've seen Alex. I said, Alex, where? At the KGB jail. I was summoned there as a witness. This was a face-to-face -face interrogation. I said, you're a witness, but what did you witness? And then I giggled and said, or oh, maybe you were writing a letter to the American president together? Um, he was not smiling. <laughs> he took another cigarette puff, and he said to me, it's not the time for jokes. It's all very serious. Alex was giving Solzhenitsyn to read to the students in his literature class instead of the approved curriculum. The students told their parents, and Masha from the ninth form said to her father, who is a high-party official, that Solzhenitsyn was a great Russian writer. Well, anyway, they might summon you too, you know, they, because some of our teachers have already been there. Well, all that was not very nice, but I was sure that was not my story. I did not deal with Alex and could not be a witness. In a couple of weeks, my phone rang early in the morning. I answered the phone and I heard a pleasant male voice. Hello. Investigating Officer Kruglov from the KGB is here. Sorry for the early call. Can I talk to Ella Livdanske? My heart sang. They did call me. It's me. Oh, lovely. Know what? I would like to talk to you. Can you come to our office? I said, to your office? But what did I do wrong? He didn't answer the question of mine, but just said, shall I send you a summon or will you come on your own? I said that there was no need for the summon and they would come on my own. That night, I did not sleep. The thoughts didn't let me to. What will happen to me? What will be the consequences of the conversation? And what will happen to my family, if something? Well, in the morning, I was there at the KGB jail. KGB, those three letters instilled horror into every Russian man and every Russian woman. Investigating Officer Kruglov turned to be a good-looking man in his early 30s with a friendly smile and kind eyes. 
the interrogation started. Your name, your date of birth, 21st of December, 1952. He said, oh, look, my age, what's the age? You know, I always wonder about people born in 1952. What they think, what they do. And I thought to myself, uh-huh, these are the people whom you interrogate and then accuse of the crimes they never committed, probably. <laughs> well, and then I dared to ask him a question. Tell me, please, why is Alex here? What did he do? He smiled in a very friendly way and uh, said, and what do you know about this matter? Oh, he wrote that to the American president. Well, Kruglov never told me what Alex had done and what he was accused of. Not specifically, but he asked me some questions. What was Alex saying? Alex saying maybe he was sharing about his plans uh, to leave for the West. And by the way, what was he saying about the Soviet system of education? I said that we had never discussed the Soviet system of education with Alex, first of all, because we didn't have time. We saw each other only at the teacher's room and at the teaching meetings. Um, and then, quite unexpectedly, the uh, investigating officer said, and what do you think about this Soviet system of education? And I realized something. Once, at the teacher's room, I was complaining about silly English textbooks with politically pointed texts about the happy life of Soviet people and the dire life of English and American workers. <laughs> Did somebody tell on me? Uh, but there at the KGB office, I said, well, I never analyzed uh, the Soviet system of education specifically, but uh, I just do my job. I teach English. Kruglov changed his tone and he said, teaching English is not just teaching English, reading, writing, and talking. Teaching English is political. It's ideology. You raise future builders of communism. Um, I mumbled something that it would be nice to add some original text from modern English and American writers, progressive writers, of course. Well, progressive writers were the ones allowed in the Soviet Union. Not always the best one, the ones, by the way. Well, then he was nice again. He started to wrap up, uh, thank me for coming. And when I was about to leave, he said, did he court you? Excuse me? Did he ask you out? I said, of course not. Krugov smiled and said, I'm surprised. Surprised? Why? You are such a good-looking woman. <laughs> well, little by little, the events of those days receded into the background. I continued to teach English. Alex was sent to Siberia to serve the sentence. He stayed there for five years. Now he lives somewhere in the UK. And investigating Officer Kruglov, I do not know anything about him and have never heard about him since. We are lucky at Hong Kong Stories to have had up on our stage a wide variety of experiences and storytellers. We welcome anyone on our stage who's willing to tell a true first-person story and who is in Hong Kong 
you do have to go through a process, but we promise it's mostly painless. Find out all you need to know on our website, hongkongstories.com. Our next piece is not a true first-person story as usual, but a piece of fiction from the 2019 Hong Kong Spoken Word Festival. This piece was written by Flo Janeri and read by Vesper Liu. This piece is titled Wanderlust. They said I can go anywhere. So long as my blood was there first. In hindsight, I really should have questioned the deal. But I wanted to travel. And they were offering me a key to the world. No flight reservations required. I started with short distances. I poked and prodded my finger with a needle for over a minute before I found the courage to draw blood. It barely hurt. Certainly not enough to put me off wanting to do it again. For that, I'd be more sensitive. Or sensible. Four drops of blood in an egg cup in the kitchen. I stood in the hallway and I felt it. The ever so slight pull. The shadow of energy drawing me to myself. The first time I tried, I barely moved at all. Then the fear turns into excitement. And I overshot the egg cup and slammed myself against the kitchen counter. I felt an intense heat in my chest, nearly painful, and a sensation of being suddenly stretched in all directions as the world slipped out of sight. And then, back into the view, five meters from where I started. Imagine being very slowly pulled apart by forces beyond your control. I would give in to the pull, and a split second later, there I was. Eka before me. It was that hard. And that easy. And I was a quick study. First, locally. Rain and wind and heat meant I had to renew my favorite spots fairly regularly. But the smear of blood on the back of a bench on campus meant I was never late to class. And a drop that I taped to a lamppost around the corner from Pacific Coffee hidden behind the poster meant I could get my soy hazelnut latte at a moment's notice. There were rules, of course. Four drops, at least, together and undiluted. Or the connection wouldn't be strong enough. The dilution rule turned into my best friend when my period kicked in two weeks after the deal. Things get strange when you feel a sudden urge to dive headfirst into your toilet. The more I traveled, the stronger I got. And by the beginning of the second semester, I could comfortably travel from home to class in the mornings, head out to Saikong for an afternoon at the beach, and be home in time for dinner. Nights out in Lan Kuai Fong, and my parents wouldn't suspect a thing. 
I graduated in July, and by the end of the month, I had my gap year planned out. I kept the official list short so as not to raise suspicion. I sent her drops via airmail. The blood had to be fairly stationary for me to reach it, though I could feel the pull at all times. I didn't know what would happen if I tried to travel into a moving plane. I found it was hard to concentrate on so little an amount of blood at such a speed, like trying to keep your eyes on one blade of a spinning ceiling fan. I had a few unpleasant theories. I never tested them. I mailed a letter with four drops to a hostel in Sydney, and then another to Melbourne, a third one to Cairns. It worked beautifully. I could feel it at this point, even from so far away. The pull, the inexplicable force that drew me to the blood I had scattered. I never wondered about how strong the pull might get. Instead, I lived my life of experiences. I posted photos. I met strangers in hostels who became friends, and more often than not, strangers again. It was a good life. Suited me. I was happy, if a little lonely at times. It wasn't until December that I realized I had spread myself too thin. And it wasn't until the new year that I discovered that I could take people with me. Christmas in New Zealand, then up to Bali for Boxing Day. On the twenty seventh, I fell ill. By the evening of the twenty eighth, I was too weak to enjoy the waves, and by the twenty ninth, I realized it wasn't just a migraine. I couldn't think for the pole. It tore at my brain and heart and fingertips. It infested me with fever streams of the fjord and the cities, and the beaches I had left behind. On the thirty-first, I woke up in Queenstown, two thousand kilometers from my Bali beach hut. I had always meant to burn the envelopes before I left, but I had. Drops in my favorite places for conveniences. I spent the last day of the year frantically erasing all references points I had created and left my and felt my mind and body ease with every smudge, smear, and drip I rubbed away. My favorite coffee shop in Melbourne, a bookshop in Wellington. A small fish and chips joint in the middle of nowhere. On my last stop, at a favorite bar in Cairns, I ran into some old friends. It wasn't long before we were having a drink. We ended up all at Marco's place. The four of us all jumped up on the sofa, and when we woke up, we were back in Bali. They reassured me that they were all thrilled by the sudden displacement, though it took a while to calm me down. 
I sent a letter back to Cairns, and in the meantime, I showed them Bali, Java, Sumatra. I was never starved for connections in my travels, but till then I had had no one to share my gift with, and suddenly I have friends to plan my trips with, and it felt wonderful. The pull grew in strength. At times, a dull longing, but occasionally it yanked at my chest, an acute, almost painful yearning. I learned to distract myself with friends and sights and adventures, but I find it hard to distract myself now, though the sights and adventures persist. It was Marco who found out I used my own blood. He kept my secret until I wanted to head back home. I've told them, all of them, four drops are all it takes. But their desires are excessive. The latest letter landed yesterday, and I can feel it—the the loss of it, pumping like. Void through my veins. I can't escape. They all have vials, and they guard them carefully. But I suppose I don't feel that loss as much. Three vials of blood is nothing when they're always so close. I tried to run, once, to get as far away from them as I could. I felt the strength of it then, like an elastic band in my chest, and then kept on stretching, but it would never break. They only send a single letter at a time, but they're heavy letters. They have taken us. I have taken us to France, Italy, Argentina, India. Every time I think, this is it. One can only want to see so much. Then, they are determined to see it all. And every time, it's a new needle, a new envelope, a new letter. This one is on its way to hostile Himalaya. I no longer feel the needle. My fingers are numb. I'm tired. I'm so tired, <laughs> and I have tried to resist. I'm trying to resist even now. There is a pain in my chest. The mountains are calling, and I must go. Thanks for listening to today's stories, brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.